There's a story about a prosperous young investment banker who had just bought a BMW sedan and was really proud of it. And one night he was out driving on a mountain road in a snowstorm. He came around a corner too tight and started veering towards the edge of a cliff. At the last minute, he was able to unbuckle his seatbelt, jump out, and his car fell over the ravine to the bottom and blew up in flames. As we know, that's what always happens with cars. But anyways, he's looking down at his car and ahead of him, a a semi-truck driver had seen this happen in his rear view mirror. He's pulled over, he ran back to see if everything was okay and he noticed that this man had a, a terrible wound. Somehow, when he was getting out of the car, his arm got caught in the door and ripped off at the shoulder. And he saw this man looking down into the ravine saying, my BMW, my new BMW. And he said, buddy, you got some bigger problems than that. Look at your arm. We got to find it or look at where your arm was. We got to find it so we can sew it back on. And he looked at his arm and where his arm was and he said, my Rolex, my new Rolex. Obviously, this man had some priorities mixed up. Well, in our passage this morning, in the midst of so many things that, good things that Jesus could be doing, he demonstrates that his priorities are in the right place, that he is committed to fulfilling his divine purpose, that he is, uh, he's going to keep doing what he came to do. Last week, we saw that Jesus demonstrated his authority. He was walking along and he called Simon and Andrew, James and John, and immediately they recognized his authority and followed him. He taught in a synagogue and people were amazed at his authority, they recognized it. And then he was confronted by a demon and he commanded him to be quiet and come out and the demon obeyed immediately. Jesus had authority over all these things and it was, it was obvious everyone confronted by Jesus recognized his authority his authority demands a response the word uh, translated sometimes as immediately sometimes at once or as soon as this word has a sense of urgency and it was repeated six times through the passage that we read last week and the response of the people was amazement and they couldn't stop talking about it. They just they talked about it wherever they went, and the news spread throughout the region. And today's passage begins with that same word that, that, that's translated as soon as. As soon as they left the synagogue where Jesus was teaching and where he cast out a demon, he, they went with James and John to the house of Simon and Andrew. A few weeks ago, we talked about how this, the author of this letter, Mark, had spent time with, with Simon Peter. Peter, whose name was, or Simon, whose name was ch- changed to Peter by Jesus later on. We, we can read about that in Mark 3. But um, Simon Peter would have been the firsthand eyewitness of all of this that Mark is talking about. He would have communicated this to Mark. And what happens at, at Simon's house uh, would have been private, except that Simon Peter told Mark about it. And so you can imagine Mark 
or Simon Peter talking to Mark about what happened at the house. You can, you can kind of imagine him. You know, first he, he called us and we, we just had to go. And then he went to the synagogue and he was teaching and everybody was amazed by his authority. And then a demon came and he just said a few words and he was cast out and then he came to my house. You can just imagine how that would go. Well, we learned that Simon Peter was married because he had a mother-in-law and she was living with him. And Simon and Andrew must have went in before ahead of Jesus because they found her sick with a fever. And they, they, they don't hesitate. The same urgent word is used. They went and they, they, they tell immediately, they go to Jesus and they tell him, this is, this is what's going on. And we may look at the word fever and think that's not a big deal, just wait and get over it or something, but fevers can be very dangerous, as we know. And in Jesus' time, people wouldn't think of a fever always as, as um, a symptom of another disease, but, but an illness in itself. Even more, fevers were often considered to be a divine punishment or even demon possession. And therefore, God was the only one who could intervene and heal the person. Mark doesn't give us any of those details. His focus is on the power and authority of Jesus. And what does he do? He goes, he helps her up, and she's healed. His power and authority is demonstrated over the physical. And so um, she doesn't have to rest or recover at all. She's fully well, and she starts to serve. That's immediately what she does. But I want you to notice the way he heals. It was demonstrated last week that he could just speak and the demon raced out. He had authority from a distance and so he could have just spoke and had the, the fever leave the mother-in-law, but, but he demonstrates love, compassion, tenderness, affection. He goes and he grabs her hand while well, she's still sick and he helps her up and, that, and she's healed. And so he has ultimate power, ultimate authority, but he wields it with tenderness, compassion, and affection. And notice the way the woman responds. She, she just gets up and starts serving Jesus and his, and, and his followers. And in, in just a few words, Mark illustrates what should happen or what happens when somebody is touched by Jesus. In Jesus' kingdom, people serve each other. Jesus demonstrates this. He's the suffering servant. He lives it out and ultimately demonstrates it through his death and resurrection. So people who follow Jesus serve each other and serve him. God heals so that we can serve better. Verse 32 says that people begin bringing their, their sick and their demon-possessed to Jesus to, to heal them, but they wait until the sun goes down. Why would they do that? Well, remember that they had just come from the synagogue. So it was the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, you're not allowed to do work. And so carrying burdens, you know, you're sick and traveling, that, that was not to be done on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath started on Friday night at sunset and ended on Saturday night at sunset. So you can imagine these people, many of these people who were at the synagogue, they saw Jesus, you know, cast out this demon 
And they went home and they're just waiting for the Sabbath to be over so that they can bring more sick and, and demon-possessed to Jesus to be healed. They were just, just waiting. And, and so they, they, it says the whole town gathered at the door. It's probably a bit of an exaggeration, but there's a lot of people outside of the door waiting for a touch from Jesus. And Jesus demonstrated again his power and his authority over both the physical and the spiritual as he heals and casts out demons. I just want to stop for a minute and and say a couple things about demons and demon possession. We don't talk about that much today. The Bible is clear that there are evil spirits, there are demons that are in the spiritual realm that affect the physical. There are also heavenly beings, uh, angels, in the spiritual realm that influence and affect the physical. You just need to read through Revelation 4 and 5 and chapter 12 to get a glimpse of this heavenly realm. Ephesians 6.12 tells us that our Christian struggle is not against the physical, but against the spiritual. Listen to what it says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Satan and his forces uh, of evil are real. And they they are wanting to thwart God's plan. They're wanting to do anything they can to get in the way of God's plan, to... Uh, stop his plan to reconcile the world to himself, to restore creation, to reconcile us humans with God and with each other. And all of this through Jesus. I'm not sure exactly how demon possession works, but I do know that people who ask Jesus to forgive them of their sin and their guilt and their shame, and they give their lives to him, they're given the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1.22 says, he anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. If we follow Jesus, if we've committed our lives to him and asked him to forgive us and trust in him solely for our our salvation from sin and, and death, then we have the Holy Spirit in us. Demons are not welcome. We don't have to worry about being demon-possessed if we are following Jesus. Jesus won the battle against evil on the cross. I learned that in World War II, the Battle of Stalingrad was the tipping point in the war. The Allies defended Stalingrad against Axis advance and turned the tide in favor of the Allied forces. This battle had happened between August 1942 and February of 1943, but the war was not over until 1945. Now, I'm not a historian, but what I understand is that after Stalingrad, the the fate of the Axis forces was determined. The Allies would win, even though the war wasn't over for a couple more years. Jesus won the victory over evil completely, with his death and resurrection. There actually was never a question whether God would win, but this was the decisive turning point in history where Jesus demonstrated that he had, that he was going to win. It was, was, the battle was over, the tipping point between good and evil, good won. There's no question who will win, even though we are still facing battles until the end.
Ephesians 6 tells us how to resist evil with the armor of God. James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Our job as Christians is to follow Jesus. Our job as Christians is not to look for demons in other people. We need to be careful to recognize, yes, that there are some things that are attributed to demons, but some things are the result of physical ailment. It's all a result of evil in the world, of our sin and guilt and shame that, that together causes these things. Our job is to follow Jesus. Our job is to love people like Jesus, to share his love and to lead people to Jesus. He's the one with the authority to heal. He's the one that has authority over the spiritual and the physical and everything. And in verse 34, he says he heals people of their physical ailments. He casts out demons. He demonstrates his authority over both. Mark's point isn't to teach us about demon possession, but to show Jesus' love and his compassion and his power and authority over evil forces and over physical and over everything. When forces of evil are confronted by Jesus, they don't stand a chance. When the kingdom of God and the domain of Satan clash, Jesus wins as the king every time. Well, verse 34 ends by saying that Jesus wouldn't let the demons speak because he knew who he was. We talked a little last week about why Jesus wouldn't allow the demons to proclaim who he was. Uh, he didn't want people to learn about who he was from evil lying sources. That would only serve to discredit Another reason he wanted to be quiet, or to, for the demons to be quiet, was because Jesus was fulfilling the role of the servant of the Lord that's prophesied about in Isaiah. Listen to the idea of, of this suffering servant, or this servant of the Lord, being hidden in Isaiah 49 too. Isaiah 49 talks about the, the servant of the Lord. Listen to what Isaiah 49 too says about the servant of the Lord. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. So God talks about his servant being hidden in his hand, being concealed in his quiver, and yet he will be the one who will display God's splendor. Jesus has ultimate power and authority and he has love and compassion on people and he, he uses that, he, he reaches in and he heals people but he doesn't want to be known at this point by being a miracle worker, worker because the ultimate display of his power and authority will be at the cross and resurrection. If he displays and proclaims his power and authority through miracles and trying to make that known before the cross, people will be affirmed in their wrong assumptions about who the Messiah is. They already believe that the Messiah is going to come and conquer through military conquest, but the true Messiah is the suffering servant who's defined by restraint, humbleness, and hiddenness. One commentator explained this this way. I want to read this to you because it's, it's so good. It says, until the consummation of Jesus's work on the cross, all speculations about him are premature. Only on the cross can Jesus be, rightly be known for who he is. Until the confession of the centurion at the cross, 
all utterances about Jesus, and especially those coming from members of the rebellion, are either premature or false. So Jesus quiets the demons because he doesn't want to be proclaimed as something that will affirm people in misunderstanding. So Jesus, he calls two sets of brothers to follow him, and they, they do it without question. He's taught in the synagogue, and people recognize his authority. He's confronted with the force of evil, and he sends the evil one packing. In just a few words, he went to Simon's house and healed a woman who was really sick, and then people line up at the door to be touched by him, and he heals them, all in a day's work for Jesus. But I imagine he's pretty tired. <clears throat> 30, verse 35 says that he gets up early when it's still dark and he found a solitary place to pray. This solitary place, this word for solitary is actually the same word for wilderness that we've seen a couple times already in the book of Mark. And Jesus is going to the wilderness to meet with God. It's a place for him to meet with God and be restored and this is where he's restored. And with his father. And Mark only records Jesus going off three times to pray. Only, and it goes, records him going off to pray three times in his book. We know that he's praying all the time. But he records three times, and each time he does, both in this verse and then in chapter 6, after feeding the f- more than 5,000 people, and then in the Garden of Gethsemane, all of those times, it was at night. When it was dark, he was in a solitary place and he was, he was preparing for some sort of crisis or opposition to his ministry where he would be tempted to find an easier way rather than the way of the suffering servant. In our passage, he snuck away to be with his father, demonstrating that his power and his authority came from God alone and, and that, that this is where he's restored. And the disciples, they come looking for him. And actually, this, the force of the, the word that is used for them looking for him is, is they, were, they were pursuing him, even hunting him down. They, they were, people were wanting to see more miracles. And so the, the disciples, they're determined to, to keep this going, this, this growing fame. They're, they're, they're following this famous guy, and we've got to find him. He's got he's to do more miracles. The problem is that all the people and even of his closest followers, they're wanting Jesus because of his miracles and not for his true purpose. His true purpose is to proclaim the good news about God and his love for people. And he wants it to reach further. And as tempting as it may be for Jesus to stay and show off his miracles and and grow in popularity in 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 this growing ministry that he's had, He stays true to his divine purpose. He has come to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, and he's not going to be distracted, even when the distractions are good. There's a story about a a lighthouse on a bleak coast, and it was tended uh, by a keeper who was given enough oil for one month to keep the, the lighthouse bright at night. So it was supposed, the light was supposed to be burning every night. Well, one day, a woman came and asked for oil so that she could keep her house warm. And then a farmer came, and he wanted oil for a lamp so his son could read at night, and then still another needed some oil for an engine. 
And the keeper recognized how important all these things were, so he measured out just enough for each of these requests. And near the end of the month, the the tank in the lighthouse went dry. And the night beacon was dark. And three ships crashed into the rocks and more than 100 lives were lost. When an official came to investigate, the man explained what he had done and why, and the official said, you were given one task. It was to keep the light burning. Everything else was secondary. There's no defense. All those requests were important. But the most important thing, the top priority, would have saved over 100 lives. Satan is a great liar. He knows that there are many good things that distract us from the best things. It's so important that we stop and we reflect and we spend time with God the Father in a solitary place and pray for him to remind us and prepare us for our true priorities. So Jesus, he made sure he got up early to spend time with God the Father so that he would stay true to his most important priority, his divine calling. And so he tells his disciples they need to go. And they, they want to proclaim the, he wants to proclaim the message in other villages. And so they go. And verse 28 that came before this said that the word about him spread around Galilee. Now he goes and takes the message in person to the surrounding area. Now, we don't know when, when or where verse 40 happens. Verse 40 introduces the leper. But it's an example of Jesus' work in the nearby villages, and it's, it's significant because leprosy was an illness that was general, generally regarded as punishment from God that made the victim unclean. So people with leprosy, they were shunned. They had to, they had to go away because if... If they were close, people could be infected, so they, they, were, they were sent away so that the rest of the community would, be, would stay clean. And they had to wear their clothes a certain way, and they had to yell out, unclean, unclean, to anybody that came close so that they wouldn't come too close. They were supposed to stay a certain number of paces away from people. And so it was a, it was a life sentence to, to have leprosy, and, and it was like they were a walking corpse. They were physically damaged, religiously unclean, socially excluded, and therefore emotionally and mentally suffering as well. Well, the leper, he was supposed to keep his distance, but he was desperate. He wanted to be cleansed. He was unclean. He wanted to be cleansed. Leprosy was a symbol of, of um, sin, to the Israelites. And therefore, the Bible didn't talk about healing leprosy, but cleansing it. So Jesus here, he he demonstrates subtly that Jesus has authority to forgive sin as well as authority to heal. And this is something that will be made more explicit in next week's passage. But the leper, he's desperate. He comes to Jesus and he knows he's able to heal him. He's seen and heard about what Jesus had done, but he, he asks, are you willing? And Jesus' response is strange. It says he was indignant or filled with anger, but he reaches out and touches the man. 
to cleanse him. So his anger isn't against the man. If we consider what he's been doing so far, what Jesus has been doing, he's been, we've seen him driving out demons again and again. He's been confronted again and again by the forces of evil. And here in this man is a symbol of the power of evil at work. I think he looks at this man being sentenced to a life sentence of, walk, of being a walking corpse. And he's moved, deeply moved by compassion for the man. But he's also angry against the sickness and destruction of the powers of darkness. Jesus isn't just some force of authority. He's a person who experiences emotion and displays that emotion properly. He's angry, but his anger is against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms that Ephesians 6.12 talks about. And his actions demonstrate that he's also filled with compassion and love for this man. Nobody would dare touch a leper because if you touch something unclean, you become unclean. We know that. If you touch something dirty, you become dirty. Jesus could have commanded him to be clean from a distance. He didn't have to touch the man, but he had compassion. He, he loved him, and he hated how alone and ostracized he was. And notice that he doesn't ask the man how he got the disease, why he was ill this way. He, didn't, he hadn't asked Peter's mother-in-law either how, why she had the, the fever. Remember, both of these illnesses, leprosy and, and a fever, they had common association with some sort of divine punishment that would indicate some sort of sinfulness on the part of the person. This wasn't necessarily the case, but this definitely would have been what people were thinking. And they would have immediately thought of this person as deserving their condition for some reason. This man was ostracized in every way. He was alienated from people and from God. He couldn't go in any synagogue or temple. There was nothing he could do to make himself acceptable. Jesus doesn't blame him, doesn't put him down, anything like that. He reaches out and he touches him. He meets him where he is. And instead of becoming contaminated, as everybody thought he would, he cleanses. It goes the other way. The man is restored and cleansed. Jesus has the power and authority over the physical, over the spiritual, and these stories hint at what we'll find out more fully next week. He has authority to forgive sin. But verse 43 uses that urgent word again, at once, he sends the man away uh, with a warning to stay quiet. He continues to avoid being known as this miracle worker and becoming famous over that. He, his mission is to be the suffering servant who restrains his power, who is humble and hidden in order to avoid misunderstanding of who he is before the cross and the resurrection. And then in verse 44, he tells the man to follow the procedure that's laid out in the law in, in Leviticus 13 and 14 that explains what, what you do when you have a skin disease. <clears throat> if that skin disease is healed somehow, you're to show yourself to the priest 
and to offer the proper sacrifices. Well, people would have seen the leper break the ritual cleanliness law and, the, and Jesus breaking it by touching him, and they would have thought that Jesus didn't care, but Jesus shows that he does honor the law, and he tells the, the guy to go show yourself to the priest, follow the proper procedures. We don't know if the man eventually did what Jesus commanded, but we do know that he didn't obey Jesus' warning to keep quiet. He shared what he saw, what he experienced with everyone. And the result was that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but he stayed outside in lonely places. Let me read you what one commentator said about this ironic twist of circumstances between Jesus and the leper. Here's what he says. Mark began this story with Jesus on the inside and the leper on the outside. At the end of the story, Jesus is outside in lonely places. Jesus and the leper have traded places. Early in the ministry, Jesus is already an outsider in human society. Mark casts him in the role of the servant of the Lord who bears the iniquities of others and whose bearing of them causes him to be numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53 talks about that. And yet people still come to him from everywhere. Isn't Jesus something special? Isn't he amazing? There are a number of invitations for us from this passage this morning. And we're going to take some time just to ponder what the invitation to you is. But let me give you some ideas. I don't know what the Spirit is prompting in you. He prompts us each in wherever we're needed. He meets us where we're at. If you do not know Jesus, if you do not have him as king of your life, you can do that. You can ask him to forgive you of your sin and your guilt and your shame right now. In your, in your head, you can pray to him and admit that you need him. Like the leper, who there was nothing he could do to make himself clean. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves clean. We are full of sin and guilt and shame. And we can acknowledge that and ask him to, to forgive us. And he will, and we give our life to him, and we can be given the Holy Spirit to transform and cleanse and change us and empower us to be who he wants us to be. If you do know Jesus, what, what is he prompting in you? Maybe he wants you to find some solitude like Jesus did. Go alone and pray and review your priorities. What is the way you're living your life, the way you're spending your time, say about your priorities? The way you spend your money, how is that reflecting your priorities? How are those lining up? with God's divine calling for you. Jesus' number one priority was to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God because he was the king and people are invited to repent and believe. He's the king who loves, heals, cleanses, and bears the burdens of those who respond. And he did all this through his words and his actions. He's given us the command to follow him to love him, and to love other people. How are we loving other people? I've been pondering this in an invitation for me and, and maybe for you too. I don't know what it is. It could have been anything suggested so far. It could be something totally different, but there's a lot of people with a lot of ideas 
that oppose each other in our world. And people are trying to get the word out and tell people and, and be validated. One loving thing that we can do is to listen. Listen without trying to give our opinion. Just listen. Not giving your opinion doesn't mean that you agree with them. It doesn't mean that you affirm everything they say. But listening meets somebody where they're at. Like Jesus met the leper, met the woman with the fever. Listen. Try to understand. Affirm the dignity of the person in front of you. And just listen. Sounds really easy, it's not. I don't know what he's saying to you, but I want, I want to take some time. I'm not going to pray. I'm going to invite you to pray this morning. I'm going to be praying too, but we're going to take some time as we prepare for the Lord's Supper to, to just spend a little time alone in your heart with God. Or if you came with someone that you want to take some time to pray together, but we're just going to take some time I'm going to invite you right now for just a minute to ask God, what are you inviting me to? What is, what are you prompting, what response are you prompting in my heart right now? So I'm just going to, I'm just going to set the timer for half a minute or so. And I want you to, to just ponder that. And then I'll read a passage and we can ponder something else. So keep that up on the screen. Ponder. What is your response? As you're pondering that, I want to read to you Psalm 145, 5 to 7. It says, I will meditate on your majestic, glorious splendor and your wonderful miracles. Your awe-inspiring deeds will be on every tongue. I will proclaim your greatness. Everyone will share the story of your wonderful goodness, and they will sing with joy about your righteousness. Consider the greatness of God as you look at the massiveness of the universe and know how you are his prized possession. Isaiah 55, 6-7 says, Seek the Lord while you can find him. Call on him now while he is near. Let the wicked change their ways and banish the very thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. Yes, turn to our God, for he will forgive generously. Consider your present relationship with God in silence, allowing him to speak grace and truth.
Psalm 18.2 says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me and my place of safety. Consider all the ways that God has been faithful in any and all circumstances to you this week. As we move into communion, it's always a time to consider anything we need to confess. First John 1 John 1.9 says, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. And James 5.16 says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Take some time to confess any sin that you may be holding on to or that God is convicting you about. invite Susan to come up and we are going to take communion. If you haven't gotten one of the little uh, things in the back, you can go and grab one now as we move the table over and, um, and take communion together. I just want to re- read that familiar passage from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, and following. It says, For what I received from the Lord, I passed on to you, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim his death through what we're doing. We remember that what he did was for our benefit so that we could be made right with him, so that we could be in communion with him and with each other. And so we take this together in remembrance of all that we have, that we need him just like we need food, that his body was broken for our sake and his blood was spilled for us. Susan's gonna pray and then we'll take it together.